American Prestige listeners, it's Derek. Uh, I am joined in a, in a somber way by my co-host, Danny Bessner. Uh, I'm, it's my sad duty to inform all of you uh, that Danny has COVID. He's had it for almost two weeks now. Uh, and uh, as you'll hear uh, later, the, the interview this week is just me because uh, we gave Danny a little break on that. Uh, but Danny, I, wanted, uh, I, I think we should start here with a little update on your condition uh, for the listeners. How are you doing? Uh, good. I mean, well, uh, it, just to let everyone know, Derek was not happy about me using one of my vacation days. But, you know, after begging and pleading, he gave me well, the afternoon. It'll, it'll come out of your, your pay. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's only fair. Uh, only fair. I, we might have to unionize here at American Prestige or create, <laughs> create a collective, as the case may be. This might become a co-op. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I got COVID. Uh, it sucks. Um, I was pretty sick. Uh, still am actually fairly sick after, after a bit. I think I actually might have had a cold and that moved into COVID because my symptoms should be alleviated a bit more than they than they have been. Um, I don't have a fever, but I, I definitely still have a. <coughs> Excuse me. I definitely still have a cough. I might cough a little bit during this thing. So my guess is I had a cold that ran directly into COVID. So it'll be a, a you know a really a hell of a November. Um, you know, just thanking uh, thanking uh, the, the the gods for giving this to me. But you know, I'll recover. Everything's everything's fine. Um, got vaccinated. Obviously, was fully vaccinated. So the symptoms are less than they would have otherwise been. But I apologize to everyone. I assume. Oh, yeah, yeah. I went to the local animal feed store and I cleaned them out, you know, bought 40. Thousand doses of ivermectin, and so things <laughs> things are going great. But uh, yeah, so hopefully you know post Thanksgiving I'll feel better, and then we'll be back you know to our regularly scheduled programming. Uh, well, uh, thank you for uh, doing at least the news segment because uh, that way I'm not just monologuing at people, which <laughs> usually doesn't I would go literally well, die for American prestige. So uh, <laughs> you know, this is this is nothing. I, I would do so much more. <laughs> for the podcast. Um, so speaking of, that's that's a hell of a transition. Why don't we yes. start with world news and particularly what's been going on uh, with Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, particularly uh, what's been going on. There's some issues with the border, is my understanding. Is that correct? Or is my uh, brain yes. fog getting uh, in the way? This, <laughs> depending on how far you want to go back, this all goes back either to the fall of the Soviet Union or to uh, last fall's Nagorno-Karabakh. Nagorno-Karabakh, yeah. yes. The reason I say it goes back to the fall of the Soviet Union is because when the Soviet Union collapsed and everybody kind of drew up their national borders, Armenia and Azerbaijan were already basically at war with one another. They had started their conflict, uh, you know, within the USSR and uh, it spilled over and intensified after the collapse. And so they never really defined their border. And that's uh, separate from the issue of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an Armenian enclave inside Azerbaijan. And that, you know, the origins of all the enclaves in the Caucasus go back uh, much further than we should uh, look at here. So that's, that's the important grounding here is that the border is basically uh, understood, but it's not officially demarcated the two countries have never agreed on one on a border so what's happened now and and then we fast forward to last fall's conflict which is sort of a replay of the war that armenia and azerbaijan fought upon the fall of the soviet union in which armenian forces 
occupied the Karabakh region as well as a number of other surrounding parts of Azerbaijan. The war last fall uh, went completely in the opposite direction, rolled back almost all of the gains that Armenia had made, thanks largely to the intervention of Turkey, which uh, assisted Azerbaijan quite a bit. The Azerbaijanis were able to capture most of or all of the territory that they had lost around Karabakh, some areas that are again, disputably part of Karabakh. And where that left things was, there's a couple of things going on. One is there's a highway, the major highway that runs through southern Armenia and really the only like highway for com- commercial traffic through southern Armenia. Is that the M11? That's the yes. M11, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Parts of the M11 are now in territory that's claimed by Azerbaijan as a result of uh, the end of that war and territory that the Azerbaijanis would say was always theirs and was sort of, you know, unlawfully seized by the Armenians. You know, again, it's it's uh, like a he said, he said thing. But parts of that highway now lie in Azerbaijan. The Azerbaijanis have been setting up checkpoints, uh, really interfering with traffic, especially commercial traffic. But, uh, you know, there have been reports of communities being cut off from one another. I saw something this week that said, you know, you've got literally school children who can't get from their homes to their schools because part of the road runs through Azerbaijan now or you know, is claimed by Azerbaijan and they're not lo- allowing people to pass. So that's that's part of the problem that's been a, a huge source of tension since the end of the conflict uh, or the, the sort of official end since the ceasefire was imposed. The other thing is there is a chunk of territory in southern Armenia in the Sunik region, I, I'm probably butchering that, I apologize, on which Azerbaijani forces have basically been squatting Um, And this is pretty clearly, you know, it's not a question of uh, where you draw the border. This is pretty clearly Armenian territory, and Azerbaijani forces have been occupying it uh, for months now. This is where uh, it appears this week's major events took place. On Tuesday, there were reports of a serious clash between Armenian and Azerbaijani forces. The casualty count is a little bit sketchy. The Azerbaijanis say they lost seven uh, soldiers. The Armenians have only uh, acknowledged, I think officially at this point, one death, but there are unconfirmed reports that the, the death toll was up in the um, you know 12 to 15 range. Uh, another dozen or so Armenian soldiers were captured, it appears, by the Azerbaijanis. And there are a number of people missing, so that, that kind of fuels the idea that, uh, or the 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 thinking that the death toll was probably higher than than just one. And just Derek, just a quick question before we continue. What's always been interesting to me about this um, conflict when you're thinking broadly is, is it's a classical kind of mountainous region conflict. These types of low-level conflicts that kind of go on for, for years, if not decades, reminds me of the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Like these these regions are classically weak state regions that um, you know are, are prone to these types of low-level conflicts, particularly in disputed border areas. And so it wouldn't be a surprise to me if there this is going to be continue to be defined by um, repeated flare-ups over time. Uh, I, I would not um, be surprised if, you know, let's say there's a little bit of an economic downturn in either Armenia or Azerbaijan and the Azaris or the uh, Armenians start, um, you know, talking, uh, using this as a sort of distraction. These are the types of, of conflicts that centralized states, um, particularly centralized states that are more powerful in urban areas than they are in rural areas, kind of enjoy uh, because it allows them to distract from domestic political conditions. Is that something that's going on here at all? I, I, I believe like the original conflict had something related to that, but tell me if I'm wrong. Well, I mean, the, the original conflict was, 
Uh, I mean, I, I think largely driven by a sense uh, among the Azerbaijanis that with the support of Turkey, that relationship has really developed quite a bit uh, over in recent years. And with their military supports, plus the relationship that Azerbaijan has been developing with Russia, which I, I, I want to say more about that in a minute, but I, I think they just felt like it was the right time, basically, to act and to to roll back the gains that the Armenians had made uh, a couple of decades ago, or th- you know, th- really 30 years ago at this point. Uh, that territory around Karabakh in particular, not so much Karabakh itself, but the territory around Karabakh has been a sore point for the, uh, the Azerbaijanis and, and the Armenians sort of having captured that territory. It's been a sore spot for the Azerbaijanis for 30 years, and, and uh, you know, they seized upon the opportunity to take it back, basically. Part of, I think, what's going on now is that the ceasefire deal, which which Russia brokered uh, last fall to end that that conflict, included a number of things, a number of provisions that were supposed to ensure that this kind of thing didn't happen again. Uh, one of them being, a, a, you know, a, a push to or a, a, uh, an effort to officially demarcate the border. Another being the establishment of regional transportation corridors that could be used by uh, whomever and would cross, you know, territories that would be sort of guaranteed, I think, by the Russians. Uh, the big one is that that Azerbaijan has been after for a long time is a, a corridor across southern Armenia that would connect uh, Azerbaijan proper with Nakhchivan, which is an exclave of Azerbaijan that is entirely separate from Azerbaijan proper. And, you know, you have to go through Armenia to get to it. So, you know, negotiations are supposed to be going on on, on a bunch of these issues, and, and they had apparently made some progress. But as, I mean, understandably, I think for the Prime Minister of Armenia, Nikol Pashinyan, th- this is a very difficult political negotiation for him because he, he, his side lost the war, and so they're negotiating kind of under the gun, and the Armenian people know that, and the political situation in Yerevan has been difficult for him. He has to be careful about what kind of agreement he uh, accepts uh, because he's going to get criticized for, for sort of being bullied around by the Azerbaijanis. So there's been some some sense that he's hesitating uh, on these talks and, and that the Azerbaijanis are provoking border clashes in order to kind of muscle him into to agreeing to a, a, a maybe lopsided deal or, or you know, a deal he might not otherwise agree to. I think there's something to that. Also, the other interesting feature of this is the role that Russia has played or not played, really. Russia and Armenia are treaty allies. They're both members of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which functions to some degree like NATO, for example. It's a, it, it does oblige members to come to the collective defense of their, their fellow treaty organizations. Now, uh, Russia didn't get involved in the Karabakh War in the fall because Russia's position has always been that Karabakh isn't covered by the C- CSTO. Um, so that's in keeping with sort of their longstanding position here. But now it, the conflict has moved into Armenia proper and it's on the border, you know, in with uh, actual Armenia, which is un- indisputably sort of covered by the CSTO. And the Russians still aren't doing anything. Uh, this has generated a fair amount of anger in Armenia. And, and there are questions about what exactly is going on here. The Russians... I think clearly view the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict as a, a conflict they don't want to get involved in, basically. I mean, they, they want to maintain uh, a strong relationship with Azerbaijan, particularly to counter any Turkish 
uh, influence in the Caucasus, which the Russian government views as its, uh, you know, purview and, and doesn't, uh, you know, deal well with uh, other countries kind of moving in. So, uh, that's something to, to, to watch. Um, the CSTO is, is sort of a centerpiece of Russia's, uh, foreign policy and the Russians have in the past in places like Syria, for example, put a great deal of emphasis on coming to the support of their allies, partly in order to show other allies that Russia is a reliable security partner. And this is kind of counter to that interest, I think, what they're doing now. Well, <clears throat> we'll continue to keep you updated here uh, on American Prestige about goings-on in the Caucasus. Uh, why don't we head on over to uh, Belarus and, and what's been going on there, Derek? So, for months now, there has been, obviously, since since last August, August 2020, the Belarusian presidential election, which incumbent Alexander Lukashenko, and I, I know I'm going to botch his name, he, just... You're just going to have to deal with it, uh, <laughs> which he won, uh, you know, under circumstances that the West has decided were illegitimate and that uh, he fixed the election. So uh, they've, they've been opposing the European Union in particular has taken the lead on this imposing sanctions against the Belarusian government over the election. And then over there was a, a protest movement that really took root after the election and has been uh, you know, put down by Belarusian security forces. A lot of people have been jailed. There's been some violence. Uh, so they've been sanctioning Lukashenko and his government over those things. The EU members on Belarus's borders, so that's Poland, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, um, Estonia is not on the, the border of Belarus, but it's another, you know, Baltic state, so it kind of gets included here, uh, have been complaining now for, for a couple of months uh, that Lukashenko's government has been inviting or facilitating uh, the tra- you know the the kind of bringing in of of immigrants would be migrants people who want to get into the European Union they've been bringing them to Minsk from all manner of places primarily Iraq but you know Turkey and and uh, elsewhere Syria etc uh, they've been bringing them to Minsk and then Belarusian authorities, you know, the police and the military have been kind of hurting them, basically. That's a horrible word to use, I know, but they've been sort of collecting them and forcing them to the border and kind of, you know, uh, pushing them over the border. They've called this a hybrid war. They've called it uh, weaponizing migration, a lot of horrible and dehumanizing uh, things that that don't really get the point across that these are human beings trying to uh, get to a better place. The result has been a standoff that's gotten quite heated over the, especially over the last uh, few weeks there have been more sanctions from the EU and the United States uh, there have been large numbers of migrants kind of stranded at the border in these makeshift camps at least 13 of them have died in recent weeks mostly due to exposure as the temperatures drop uh, of course in keeping with its traditions of compassion for for the less fortunate among us the EU and has has completely refused to let any of these people in uh, and that's left them kind of you know pressed on the border between uh, an EU that won't allow them in and a, a Belarusian government that won't allow them to go back the EU has been working to pressure some of the countries of origin for these people and companies, airlines in particular, that have been facilitating their transit to, to Belarus. That seems to be working. Uh, a number of airlines have said they'll stop 
flying into Minsk. And in turn, that pressure now seems to be working on the Belarusian government. Uh, Belarusian officials have begun kind of uh, apparently, according to you know what the, the news reports are, they've begun emptying out these camps and the, the migrants have become, you know, kind of moving the migrants away from the border. There's some indication Lukashenko had a phone call with Angela Merkel uh, earlier this week, and there's some indication that they may have made a little bit of a breakthrough in terms of you know, discussing the need to settle this crisis with negotiations. Uh, so it may be it may be easing off, but it's been a, uh, a very serious situation, especially for the people stuck in the no man's land between these two entities. And it's been, you know, another uh, wonderful example of how everybody, I'm not, I'm not just singling out the EU, but how everybody treats migrants, which is just horribly, uh, yeah. no matter what the circumstances are. Um, to not be associated you know, the, with a the, nation state is just not good in right. our modern society. Right. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's where things stand now. It, it seems like the crisis is maybe abetting a little bit and they may be, uh, you know, finding a, a way forward to ending that. It doesn't change the reality for the uh, the people who are trying to enter the EU, that their choice now is um, you know, basically they don't have a choice. They're going to be returned to the places that they fled in the first place because we have uh, really no compassion for these people. Uh, it's so, it's so grim whenever, especially when everyone talks about migrant or refugee politics, it's just, it's always a bad situation. So why don't we end on a high note then, Derek, what's been going on with, uh, President Joseph Biden and, um, uh, comrade Xi, uh, Xi Jinping in, in China? So uh, there's been for some time talk of getting Biden and Xi together for a summit. It would have to be a virtual summit because she hasn't left China since the onset of the pandemic. So they've been working on the details of a virtual summit, which finally came together Monday evening. This is was, you know, to much fanfare, the two of them kind of, you know, speaking face to face amid all these tensions in the U.S.-China relationship. Biden and she supposedly have uh, a good relationship stemming from Biden's time as, as vice president. They, they apparently got along with one another fairly well then. I'm happy to report that they didn't like storm out of the meeting and, and start World War III. Uh, so I think if you set the bar there, it was a, uh, a positive outcome. Uh, beyond that, uh, you know, they, didn't, they don't appear to have. <laughs> yeah, really. Beyond that, they don't appear to have made much substantive progress on any of the issues like Taiwan or Hong Kong, human rights, uh, trade disputes, uh, the situation in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. I don't think they made any substantive progress on any of these things, but that really wasn't the point. You don't get the presidents together to make progress on detailed issues. They, they were sort of there to just take the temperature down to cool things off in uh, in the relationship overall. And in that sense, I think it was successful. Uh, there are a couple of things that did come out of it that are sort of substantive. One was, I think they, uh, they apparently agreed to kind of ease off on the mutual mistreatment of one another's journalists. There have been a lot of, over, especially in, over the last couple of years, there have been a lot of heavy-handed visa restrictions and other you know, kind of restrictions imposed on journalists on both sides, the United States on, on Chinese journalists and China on U.S. journalists. They agreed to kind of pull back a little bit from that. The other thing that's interesting that they agreed to in principle, not in any detailed way, was to bring China into global arms 
arms control talks, which has been a demand of the U.S. for quite some time. And it's been something that China has resisted. So I don't know how this is actually going to work moving forward, but it could be an interesting development. It would bring China into the same conversation that's basically right now just a U.S.-Russia conversation. Uh, it could incorporate China into that. So that is interesting. The other thing that people have begun to notice that was an issue even as recently as Tuesday is that Biden uh, keeps basically changing U.S. policy toward Taiwan every time he talks off the cuff about this, which is, is interesting. In between every time he shits his pants. <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically. So, I mean, he keeps talking about like Taiwanese independence or, uh, you know, making these remarks about, uh, you know, when he's asked, will the U.S. defend Taiwan in the case of a Chinese invasion, like saying uh, flat out, yes, uh, I think he did that at one point, which is really, I mean, is 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 uh, kind of undermines the strategic ambiguity, and you can put that in quotes, I guess, uh, around the official U.S. policy toward Taiwan. So there's a piece in the, I think, Washington Post, or maybe it was Foreign Policy, uh, about this, about how he keeps uh, either flubbing these answers or like he keeps uh, unveiling a new U.S. policy toward Taiwan. I think the more realistic answer is that he's just flubbing it. You know, this is somebody who is not. <laughs> Well known for That's staying awesome. on message, even when he was, uh, you know, a hale and hearty man of uh, in his sixties, and now he's certainly not that. So I don't, I don't think he's uh, he's actually changing any U.S. foreign policy on the fly. But who knows? It's another thing to keep an eye on. Well, on that happy note, Derek, why don't you uh, introduce uh, this week's interview, and then we'll uh, see everyone next week. Yeah, so this week we're uh, I'm being joined by Terry Ostebo. Uh, you'll hear all about him uh, in a moment, but he's uh, uh, he's at the University of Florida and he uh, is an expert on uh, Ethiopia and its ethnic makeup, and uh, he's going to walk us through the conflict there. So it's uh, it's a good interview, and, and Terry's a real expert on this uh, the subject. So I was very happy that uh, he was able to do it, and uh, yeah, uh, stick around for that. All right, everyone, thanks, and I hope I'll be better soon and. See you all soon. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek, and I'm very pleased to be joined uh, by Terry Ostebo, who is the chair of the Department of Religion and associate professor at the Center for African Studies uh, and the Department of Religion in the, at the University of Florida. Uh, he's the founding director of the University of Florida Center for Global Islamic Studies. Uh, he has studied Islam in contemporary Ethiopia and Islamic reformism in Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa. His focus is on ethnicity and religion. Uh, he spent time living in Ethiopia, six years, I believe. His most recent major publication, um, and Terry, you can correct me if, I, if, if there's something more recent, is uh, it's a book called Islam, Ethnicity, and Conflict in Ethiopia, The Bali Insurgency, uh, 1963 to 1970, from Cambridge University Press, was published last year. Um, and he is here to help us unpack uh, over a year now of conflict in Ethiopia that, that has seen a dramatic turn uh, in the course of that that period of time. So, Terry, thank you very much uh, for coming on the program. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, I want to start basically, I'm going to let you start us where you think we need to start to understand this conflict. Obviously, it, it is um, the main players here are the Ethiopian federal government on the one hand, uh, along with 
uh, allies from Eritrea and from uh, the Amhara region. We can uh, talk about the role that they've played more specifically uh, in a bit. Um, but it's the Ethiopian government on the one hand and the Tigray People's Liberation Front uh, on the other. I think maybe it would be best to start, since the TPLF has been around uh, for a while now, maybe the best place to start would be um, their origins in the, the sort in the 1970s to 1991 civil war uh, and the overthrow of the Derg military government. Why don't you sort of um, start us there and, and, you know, like I said, take us uh, as far back as you think we need to go to understand them. Yes. Um, Ethiopia is a very complex country with a long history. So it's always difficult to determine yes, when I mean, to start. And, understanding, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> with the understanding that we could spend episode after episode covering Ethiopia. Right. There's just so much. Right. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we're trying to try to get this as streamlined as we can. Yeah. No, you're right. Uh, in painting the picture of picture of the parties uh, to this conflict, TPLF is, is, of course, one of the major ones here. And the TPLF, Tigrayan Liberation, the People's Liberation Front, was uh, established then by the time of the revolution, so to speak, in, in 1974 or 75 in the northern region of Tigray. It was Marxist-Leninist-inspired movement, but they were still fighting against the, the, the Marxist regime, believing that the question of ethnicity had to be solved alongside the issue of, of class. So they fought um, a 70-year guerrilla war, sometimes allied with the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, but sometimes the relationship wasn't uh, as smooth Um as other times. Um, fast forward to 1991, uh, they were able, again, with the support of the Eritrean People's Liberation Front and the Roma Liberation Front, able then to overthrow the so-called Derg regime that governed from 74 to 91. Taking power, they uh, established a transitional government with a number of other larger and smaller parties, uh, that lasted un until 1994. In that process, it became clear that the TPLF was the one that wanted to have the upper hand, and gradually uh, other parties in the transitional government were either squeezed out or left because of the pressure that they were facing. And the new constitution was then ratified in 1995, which then introduced this a system of multinational federalism, which was uh, uh, a very new uh, way of governing, not only for Ethiopia, but for a uh, federal system writ large. That meant that the country would be divided into different regional states uh, based upon ethno-linguistic boundaries. Now, of course, that was simple in some cases, but not that simple in other cases. So they had nine different regions that were established. Uh, the Oromia region, where the Romo lived, was the largest one. You had the Amhara region, the Tigray region, and so forth and so forth. And a couple of years ago, another region has been established. So now we have 10 regional states. Uh, the TPLF established a coalition with uh, three other ethnic-based parties, but it was clear that um, the real power laid with the TPLF, and they governed the country with an iron fist until 2018. 
There were elections every five years, but most of them, if not all, did not have a really even playing field. So uh, they were able to keep their power through elections. And much documentation has been made about violation of human rights and lack of democracy. And they were the, 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 it was largely in one party state with the coalition and with TPLF as the main, the main actor. In 2015, things started to become more complicated with widespread Oromo protests across the Oromo region, young people taking to the streets protesting lack of democracy, protesting that the Oromo hadn't achieved the legitimate influence and that the rights of the Oromo was, were being violated. And later on, they were joined by protests in the Amhara region, and things started to become uh, pretty unstable. There were like weekly, if not daily, protests ac- across the country. That time, Prime Minister uh, Desalegn Haile Mariam, who had taken over after the long time Prime Minister Melezanawi died in 2012, was unable to deal with the situation and he stepped down in February of 2018. And the EPRDF coalition that had their own internal debates and in April 2018, uh, Abi Ahmed, Ahmed came to power as the new prime minister. In um, 2019, he abolished or ended the EPRDF as a coalition and replaced it with a one party, the Prosperity Party. Um, Terry, I want to I, I want to stop you just for a second because you mentioned the, the the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front or the EPRDF, which was the coalition uh, or the alliance of sort of ethnic parties that comprised. Uh, the TPLF-led state or apparatus, basically. What's your sense of the the other ethnic parties that were part of that coalition? Were these legitimate parties? Were they established kind of by the TPLF to to maintain the, like an appearance of um, ethnic diversity, or, or or did they really have like what, what was uh, outside of the TPLF? Did the rest of that alliance really have any any um, I guess legitimacy is the best word. Yeah, there are different opinions about that. Uh, the Amhara People's Democratic Movement was established in the 1980s. It had a different name. So that party was then already there and was um, then brought into this coalition. The Oromo People's Democratic Organization was something that came to be established around 89 and um, that most people would agree, I think, that this was more or less um, something established by the TPLF. Uh, so there were Romo prisoners of war, officers and others that were kind of tasked with, with creating um, this party. And the fourth one, the Southern People's Party, came on a later stage, and that was uh, very clearly something that was established by the TPLF to kind of include the various different ethnic groups in the South. It's not fair, I think, to say that these other parties and the actors within them had no agency. I think that is um, too simplistic. But, um, uh, and and there was most likely... um, 
competitions going on. Unfortunately, we don't know too much of what's been going on inside the powers, uh, the corridors of power. So uh, Abi comes to power uh, in the middle of these protests. He is Oromo. Um, the the obvious, you know, uh, implication is that the the coalition decided that putting forward an Oromo prime minister would would help tamp down these protests. But he uh, really kind of, I guess, hits the ground running in a sense. I mean, he's he's there to make big changes, as you say. He he dissolves the EPRDF and reforms it into the Prosperity Party. So take us from there. The TPLF obviously d- does not approve of that decision. So so what happens from there? Mm. Yeah, he came, uh, he, he was riding this this kind of Oromo wave, so to speak, when it came to power and, and became quickly very popular, and not at least because he was promising democratic reforms. He was talking about, we need to end our violation of human rights. We need to release political prisoners. We need to invite back uh, movements that we have defined as terrorist movements. So there was a, um, people talk about Abimania during the summer and fall of, of 2018. Uh, and of course, as you know, he won the Peace Prize in, in 2019, a Nobel Peace Prize. And that, of course, galvanized his own standing, uh, both nationally and internationally. But then when he, in December, abolished or uh, the EPRF and, and created uh, the PP, Prosperity Party, the TPLF were the only coalition member that said, no, we're not going to be part of that. Then they accused him for violating uh, the EPRF's own bylaws and procedures and way of doing that. So the, the relationship between then the TPLF and the PP and Abiy Ahmed uh, became increasingly, uh, I wouldn't say tense at the early stage, but, but it soured very clearly. And then in 2020, COVID hit the world and it also hit Ethiopia. And um, by that time, before the, the, the pandemic arrived, um, the national and regional elections was slated to be held in May of 2020. Um, as May approached, it was decided to postpone them to August because preparations weren't made. Um, but then during summer, Abiy Ahmed and, and the government decided to postpone the elections indefinitely uh, because of COVID. Uh, that created a lot of, uh, of uproar and debates. Um, and TPLF was saying very clearly that this is leg- illegitimate and we are going to hold our own regional election in, in uh, September of 2020. Up to that, um, rhetoric became more and more hostile between the federal government and the regional government of Tigray. The main leaders had then moved to Tigray. So there were kind of, um, there was a, a, a dimension here of they were in the region and Abdi, Abdi was in the capital. The TPLF or the Tigrayan regional government, better to say, held their regional elections uh, on September 9, uh, 2020. Uh, and TPLF uh, won uh election with a landslide. And from there on, um, things got worse. 
in terms of the federal government holding back budget. Um, COVID mitigating efforts were stopped into Tigray. And um, the Tigrayans uh, were similarly accusing the federal government of not being, of being illegitimate. And um, a war of words, words just escalated um, until the um, TPLF or the Tigrayan Defense Forces attacked the northern command base that is located within Tigray. And they call it a preemptive strike to uh, make sure that um, they would not be uh, wiped out or attacked by, by the federal uh, government and cooperating militias. And here is where people disagree who started the war. Before we sort of get into the conflict, I, I want to get your impression of how Abi had been had been governing the country. Uh, obviously, the conflict has um, you know taken things in a particular direction, but in terms of his management of what what seems like a project of sort of creating a sense of collective Ethiopian nationalism versus the need to manage uh, the many ethnicities and their their sort of uh, demands and also in terms of his promised efforts to uh, open up Ethiopian society to to you know sort of make democratic reforms to to change things in that regard what was your impression of how he was doing on those fronts before uh, things degenerated last year into into conflict he early introduced a new political philosophy around the 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 notion of madamur which is an amharic word that means like to add on um and the idea um, be, behind this philosophy was focused more on a unitary ethiopia where everybody should live together uh and there were hints that uh, he made that the multinational federalist system was not good for the country. It divided, um, it divided different ethnic groups. So instead of, of, of um, advocating for an ethno-based nationalism, he, he emphasized the, like an Ethiopian-based nationalism, like one country uh, and one people. Um, that was something that the TPLF and other groups like Doromo was not very happy about because they saw that the multinational federalism was the only project, the only system that could really secure the rights of the various ethnic groups in the country. So that was um, very early a critical division and has remained that um, uh, until today. In other words, there are just different visions for what the nation of Ethiopia should look like and different visions for how to build or for, for nation building. Uh, so <clears throat> that is still um, the critical political questions that, that is, is unresolved. When I was in Ethiopia on several occasions after I became to power, um, it was 
interesting, I would say, to see how much of the promises he made, how he was, I don't know, unable or unwilling to deliver. Uh, he did invite um, former band movements to come into the country and establish themselves as political parties. But traveling across, um, particularly Oremiam, in the end of 2019 and then the beginning of 2020, my clear impression was that the good old system of surveillance, coercion, informants, uh, informing on each other, the use of force. In other words, the good old EPRDF playbook was taking up again. So uh, in the sense that there wasn't much of these promised democratic reforms. Um, and in the course of the war, um, we have seen how this um, has been really manifested itself um, in the way that the so-called democratic process in Ethiopia is at the moment, I would say, completely derailed. This, I mean, my my observation before the war was one of the things that struck me about uh, Abi's rule was how quickly, having come to power on the uh, in this wave of protest, primarily among the Oromo, and and uh, you know riding a sort of wave of popularity, um, you know, in that community in particular, as he he assumed the the prime minister's post, how quickly his relationship with Oromo activists seemed to break down and, and how fast it, it turned into, or the, the protest resumed. And, and there was this sense that, um, you know, he wasn't, wasn't doing what I guess maybe they expected him to do once he, he came into power. That's correct. Um, and, um, one of the main, well, more or less informal, but the main actor on the, uh, Oromo side, um, kind of leading the protests was this figure, Jawar Muhammad, um, that was, had for years been in the diaspora a community in the United States, but then moved back to Ethiopia when Abi came to power, initially supported Abi, uh, but then, um, Jawar Muhammad became more and more critical, outspokenly uh, critical towards Abi. Uh, and that, of course, was an important reason um, for why he was able then to galvanize um, the resistance towards um, Abi Ahmed. Um, when, when I traveled across Ormia uh, several times, um, there was a the clear discontent, particularly from the youth side, that Abi hadn't delivered. Um, and of course, uh, their expectation, you could say, would, was unrealistic. You know, there a lot of employment and poverty and, and many kind of thought, I think, that Abi would be a quick fix to all this. But um, when he didn't deliver on these things, um, he was losing uh, more of his support. But particularly his flirting with this unitary system um, and, and hinting towards ending the multinational federal system was something that um, the Oromo felt was uh, really a betrayal of what he had, um, what they thought he would do. 
So we're now at the the point of conflict. The, the TPLF uh, holds its election. This is a you know direct challenge, really, to to Abi, and and they attack the military outpost. Um, the conflict begins November, early November of last year, uh, and very quickly seems to go uh, in favor of the Ethiopian government. And the Ethiopian government is working with, um, although it took months before anybody was willing to admit it, um, the Eritrean military, which deploys into the, the Tigray region and, and is um, implicated, I think, in, in um, you know, m- many of the, the major kind of civilian atrocities that, that went on in those first, uh, that first part of the war. Can you talk about the role that Eritrea played and how did it come to be? How did they come to be involved? What was the the sort of nature of Eritrea's relationship with the TPLF? You you mentioned that they were, um, you know, the Eritrean uh, ruling party and the TPLF were allied at one point. Obviously, that relationship um, completely came apart after the TPLF took power in Ethiopia because the two countries spent uh, so much time in conflict with one another. But what what was their kind of position going into this conflict and, and why did they become such a big factor in it? The president of, of Eritrea, Isaias Avorki, uh, always looked upon himself as the big brother in these, these different liberation struggles. Um, but then when um, Eritrea got independence and TPLF continued governing Ethiopia, um, the very size of the two countries and the influences that he had uh, was incompatible, and and that made him uh, more and more angry, uh, particularly on the TPLF, uh, who a movement that he had always looked upon as a, like a a minor compared with his own movement, and that of course um, this this hostile relationship climaxed in 1998 with a two year war uh, with Ethiopia and Eritrea border conflict basically. Um, and uh, some kind of, of, of negotiation or settlement was made after that, but the relationship between the TPLF government and Eritrea was never good. And here is where Abi comes in and starting negotiations uh, for peace um, with Eritrea and then bypassing the TPLF. Um, and I think it's fair to say in hindsight that um, the, the peace settlement, the agreement with Eritrea was part of Abbe's attempt to further sideline uh, the TPLF and to garnish uh, an alliance that with Eritrea could be very helpful in, in bringing uh, the TPLF to its very end. The problem has been, I think, and many other are arguing the same thing, is that Abi seems to have been played by Isaias. Isaias is really a political uh, animal here. And um, we have seen more and more, um, not only during Eritrea's actual involvement in the conflict, uh, but also how particularly uh, Abi Ahmed's relationship to the Western world has soared, which is like 
a template of how Isaiah is relating to um, the Western society. And uh, we know that there are a number of Eritreans in Ethiopia, intelligence figures, and so on. So Isaiah is really making an impact upon Ethiopian politics, um, even if their military involvement has decreased as we speak. One of the concerns, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, was the has been really the presence of uh, Eritrean refugees in in I think two camps uh, in the Tigray region that were potentially you know targeted by the Eritrean forces in the region were um, and have been. Um, you know, there's been talk of them being cut off from uh, any possibility of humanitarian assistance. What was the, what were the status of those refugees, and and what do do we know about uh, their situation right now? They they were caught in a very difficult situation um, when the Eritreans came in. Uh, they occupied or took control over several of these camps. And we know that um, many actually were brought back to Eritrea and, and uh, imprisoned in Eritrea. We don't know the actual numbers, but we know that this uh, happened. Um, we also know that as the atrocities committed by Eritrean forces um, increased, there were elements of the Tigrayan Defense Forces that also attacked these camps, refugee camps. Um, the level of, of, of violence against them is, is still unclear. Uh, many tried to flee uh, into down south to Addis Ababa. Uh, but basically at the moment, um, there is very little information about the current uh, situation. There are a number of them still in Tigray uh, region, uh, and we can just imagine that their situation is still difficult due to the fact that um, very little humanitarian assistance has actually arrived into Tigray. So similarly to the rest of the population, um, they are most likely having a very difficult time. I want to get back into the course of the conflict, but this highlights what, you're, you're, what you just said there highlights one of the big challenges in sort of following along with what's been happening, which is that it seems very difficult to get, even in, in sort of normal circumstances, it seems like it seems challenging to get um, media or communications out of Ethiopia about, you know, what's going on. And this has been magnified tremendously uh, since the start of the conflict because of communications blackouts, um, you know, cutting, you know, cutting the internet, cutting cell service, that sort of thing. Um, under, you know, given the the challenge of, of kind of learning, you know, trying to figure out what's really going on, what, what do we know about um, how the conflict has gone, particularly 
how we went from, um, you know, if you could take us through sort of these early weeks by the end of November of last year, it seemed like, uh, you know, the Ethiopian government was in control of Mekela, the, the regional capital. Uh, it seemed like the TPLF had been driven out into the, you know, into a guerrilla effort, basically, into the countryside. And now we're in a situation, you know, we've come all the way to the point where TPLF forces are sitting maybe a day or two March from Addis Ababa, and, and you know there are the government is like mustering the people, you know, the citizens of the capital to register weapons and get ready to defend themselves. How did we come from, um, you know, how do how do we come from there to to hear such a dramatic shift? Yes, it has been a, a very interesting development, um, going from uh, like you say from from nearly being defeated to now like you say, being in close to the capital. Uh, and um, I think each one of us who have been following this, 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 this war, or this conflict has been taken by surprise several times of how um, things have shifted. But you're right, the, the, um, the federal army together with um, their ally, allies, uh, the Amhara regional forces, the, the, the Eritrean army, was able to take control over uh, the capital and um, uh, the the TPLF was forced out, and they were hiding in in the mountains. Um, and their um, their military capacity was severely weakened. Um, in the, and during the course of you know early 2021, um, the situation looked very dire uh, for the. Uh, to grain forces. But then they launched um, uh, an offensive called Yalula, named after a, a, a historical figure in, in Tigray. They, they launched a campaign and then in June uh, was able to retake uh, Mekela and then take control over larger parts of the Eritrean, of, sorry, of, of Tigray. And what is remarkable here is that um, they have not received any military support from the outside, as we know, uh, but they've been um, fighting a guerrilla war with hit and run attacks. And through that, they were able to take weapon and military equipment from the uh, mainly the federal uh, Ethiopian army and then build up their own capacity. Um, so in other words, uh, by doing this, they were, um, they more or less moved from being, um, scattered guerrilla movement to becoming close to a conventional army. And in the course of this, um, the, um, the Ethiopian federal army has been severely weakened, uh, and their train, their train forces have withdrawn to the northern parts of Tigray. And then we have had this offensive or this movement south into Afar region and Amhara region. And like you say, they are, uh, the, the Tigrayan forces are now uh, pretty close to Addis Ababa. Is it is it fair to say, I mean, with the TPLF having ruled the country more or less for, for so long, is it fair to say that They've got, in terms of kind of battle experience or, or warfare experience, that their fighters are 
relatively on par with the the Ethiopian federal forces, and it was just a question of lacking the kind of uh, equipment that, as you say, they've now uh, been able to capture and equip themselves with. Uh, is is that is that fair to to say? Well, you have to remember also that um, the Ethiopian federal army, the many of the the important leaders, generals, were Tigrayans, and they are now in Tigray or fighting on the Tigrayan side. And and we talk about here um, generals with years of combat experience, you know, from the 1970s. I mean, these, these are now very old, um, old guys, but they're still uh, coordinating, leading the military operations. So they have, um, they have um, a military leadership that, that, that know, know what they're doing. Um, they have also been able to recruit um, thousands of young Tigrayans. Um, and there has been no problem, uh, it seems, to attract uh, volunteers to join the forces. And one, one important factor here is that um, the atrocities committed uh, mainly by the Eritreans, but also the Ethiopian Federal Army uh, of looting and massacring and, and, and cutting off bank services, electricity, and so on, kind of drove uh, young people to desperation. And they basically had no other choice, they thought, than to join the fighting forces. It was either to go home and starve or, or having lost what they already had. And so, so in that way, um, the acts by the Eritrean and Ethiopian army actually galvanized um, the young Tigrayans to join the fight. So in that sense, you could say that um, in, in some, they have very proficient military leadership. They have most likely very motivated um, fighters. Uh, and then again, uh, being able to take over um, the military equipment of the um, um, Ethiopian army. That doesn't mean that the fighting has been easy. We have no idea of losses, but it's clear that both sides have lost thousands of, of, of their soldiers. You mentioned um, a couple of answers ago, uh, the the role that Amhar regional security forces have played in this conflict. And they were, you know, in addition to the Eritreans, they're the other kind of third party that I wanted to talk about. Um, right now, as things stand, you know, as you said, the, the TPLF has been able to retake much of uh, the Sigurai region. They've moved into uh, neighboring regions, Afar and, and Amhara, part of Amhara, uh, and now sit, you know, kind of poised to attack the capital if they want to. Uh, but there's a Western, the Western part of Tigray is still occupied, and it's occupied, I think, mostly by uh, Amhara regional forces um, who are obviously working with the federal government and with whatever Eritrean forces are still in the country. Um, I, I, I hate to sort of look at conflicts like this through the lens of, uh, you know, well, these people have been fighting each other for thousands of years. You just have to chalk it up, which is like sort of, you know, DC speak for a lot of this stuff. Um, but there is a history. I mean, there is a history of rivalry between the Amhara and the Tigray, and particularly 
over, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think over that territory in, in the Western Tigray region that, that's been disputed between those two communities. Can you give us a context for what the Amhara are doing and why they're so heavily involved in this conflict um, and, and you know, what, what role they've played um, in, the, in the fighting? Hmm. The rivalry uh, is not something new. It, it goes back 19th, 19th century, 18th century, and so on. But um, the, it has increased during the, the time of the PRDF, where the Amhara um, uh, political elite, many of them, and, and the people themselves, um, were not happy with the multinational federal system. Um, and when the TPLF tried to address historical ethnic inequalities, they often pointed to the Amhara as like, you know, the old, uh, the old regime that had, uh, suppressed other, uh, peoples in the South and so on. So they painted an image of the Amhara as, you know, the culprit of Ethiopia's inequalities. And of course that didn't go well with the Amhara. So, in the course of, of this this um, 27 years, the relationship has soared. And then, of course, comes this um, disagreement over territory. Uh, when when the, the, the map was drawn in the beginning of the 90s, um, Tigray or the TPLF um, expanded the Tigray region uh, and included territories that uh, were dominated by, by Amhara peasants. Uh, so that has been simmering. But it's also fascinating to see um, in the course of this conflict, um, and I, that has taken many of us with surprise, the, the really hateful rhetoric coming from the Amhara side um, and, and, phrases and words used that that really are of a genocidal nature of wanting to eradicate the Tigrayans is like a, a, a cancer that needs to be weeded out, which has also come from the prime minister. So there has been this um, very, uh, very rapid increase in, in hate speech which, which really has, has polarized this to a degree that uh, I don't think we've ever seen in, in modern history. And of course, that leaves us with a question, can, can this relationship be repaired? Among the, I mean, we've talked about the, the, the humanitarian situation, which seems to be dire. We've talked about uh, the atrocities that have been committed against uh, civilian populations over the course of this war. Both of those things are... are subject to this, uh, you know, kind of media blackout or the, the restrictions on actually knowing what's happening versus just, you know, getting kind of scattered reports coming out of uh, places. And I mean, you'll, you'll hear the UN talk about, uh, you know, it, it estimates that that most of the population of Tigray region is, uh, you know, in sort of dire need of, of food assistance. But it's you, you don't know really what the situation is exactly because it's it's been so hard to get news out. But what we do know and maybe you can speak to uh, what we are aware of in terms of how bad this conflict has been for civilians and and also um one of the other kind of major atrocities that that has been 
getting more attention, I think, in the last few uh, last couple of weeks uh, has been the mass arrest of mostly Tigrayan, ethnic Tigrayan people in Addis Ababa. You know, the government claims that these are uh, kind of secret TPLF supporters, but it seems to be basically a, a you know a roundup of of ethnic Tigrayans. Maybe can you give us an overall picture, even though we don't really know the specifics of of, of the humanitarian situation? Yes, you're right. The uh, UN has has brought out estimates of, of people in, in dire need. I think that number now has increased from 400,000 to seven, 800,000. Um, we know that um, food has not been delivered for, for a long time. Uh, the UN has continuously said that we need at least 100 trucks filled with food to arrive every day to meet the needs. At the moment, I can't remember how many trucks, but uh, very far from from that number. So that's the thing we know, that the food has not been brought in. As the same is true with um, medical support um, and other kind of humanitarian assistance. Uh, a couple of days ago, the um, main hospital in Mekela reported uh, 200 children had died of hunger. Um, I don't think that this is ever confirmed, but um, I would not be surprised that this is the case. Um, the human um, humanitarian situation is also, of course, very difficult in the Amhara region and Afara region as the conflict has moved to those areas. So we have a number of internally displaced people, uh, both in the Amhara region and, and Afar region. Uh, fortunately, um, aid uh, is coming in to these areas more than to Tigray. Um, I don't think it's enough, but but there's no obstacles for aid coming to those areas except for where there's active fighting going on. And then um, uh, last week, uh, Human Rights Watch um, published one report that talked about sexual systematic sexual violence um, committed in the Gray region. And Amnesty came out with a similar report uh, 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 about atrocities committed in Amhara region by the Tigrayan uh, forces, about massacres and, 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 and sexual abuse. So it's, war is always dirty, so it's pretty clear that... Um, um, crimes are committed by by all involved parties, but then you have, like you said, um, the ongoing uh, arrests of Tigrayans, and some people also mentioned that Romos are being um, uh, interned. Uh, today, the Addis Ababa police uh, published pictures of of. Uh, ammunition of bullets that allegedly was found in the house of the patriarch of the Orthodox Church, uh, who, by the way, is a Tigrayan. Very interesting to see. Um, but this, I would believe, is part of um, the government's campaign of portraying Tigrayan or people of Tigrayan origins living across the country and in the capital as being. Um, possible traitors and agents for the Tigrayan forces. 
UN has said that there are around 1,000 people that has been uh, arrested. Uh, I think it's fair to say that number most likely is, is much higher. Um, in the last week, it has become, after the state of emergency was declared, it has become more systematic in the sense that you have groups that, that come different neighborhoods. There has been um, uh, calls for every housewife to give reports of who their tenants are and, and to identify if there are any to green tenants in their respective uh, houses. Um, this is going on uh, and there's no report that it's decreasing. Um, I think many of us are wondering what is the what is the political objective of this? What's the rational or logic behind arresting all these people? Um, do they really believe that if you are Tigrayan, you then would be an agent for uh, TPLF? Uh, or is it simple kind of, of, of just payback and, and revenge upon the Tigrayan forces? I want to ask you um, your impression of where, you know, again, with the TPLF now uh, sitting really within striking distance of Addis Ababa, um, if we if you look around the country and, and the TPLF is, uh, you know, there's just, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago uh, or earlier this month, uh, the signing ceremony in Washington, which was interesting to me, uh, of this new coalition that the TPLF has formed with the Oromo Liberation Army and a number of other groups, um, you know, basically calling for Abi's removal as prime minister. Um, on the other hand, you know, so I, I, I you know, this is sort of, I guess to broaden the, uh, at least by appearance sake, for appearance sake, to broaden the kind of uh, image of the TPLF's rebellion here or their movement uh, beyond just the Tigrayan people. Um, I'm curious as to whether that reflects any real support for the TPLF, not only given the memory of how the TPLF ran the country, but given some of the more recent, you know, atrocities in the last, you know, just in this conflict uh, that they've been accused of commi committing. At the same time, I I'm also curious, I mean, we've seen protests in Addis Ababa, in Addis Ababa, you know, sort of demonstrations in support of Abiy Ahmed against the TPLF. But if you go outside of the capital, uh, I wonder how much support Abiy really has as the these two kind of forces uh, come to loggerheads. Can you, you know, that's a that's a big question, I guess. But um, you know, where do they stand, relatively speaking? Do you do you think? What is your impression? Well, that's a, a very good question, and probably a million dollar question. What kind of support does does Abi Abi have? And of course, Addis Ababa is not Ethiopia. Uh, Addis Ababan, urban um, urban Ethiopians, uh, and I would also think. The vast majority in Amhara region are behind Abiy Ab Ahmed's war, and, and the the nationalist rhetoric has been um, really intense uh, during the conflict. But again, what kind of support does he have beyond Addis Ababa? I think that is that that's very uh, very good question, and and I think I would be careful. Um, to to try to give some some estimate, I think it would very much um, according to uh, ethnic group, 
ethnic groups. I think most likely um, Abi does not have that much support among the Oromo. Um, it, in the South, we have a number of other ethnic groups, um, and I think the support for him there is, is very much um, uh, varied. But when I speak to friends and, and, and my sources in the country, uh, particularly Addis Ababa, uh, there is a very strong uh, pro abbey sentiment that means that uh, everybody is just afraid of voicing any kind of critique or opposition towards abbey. So, in other words, um, uh, those who would be opposed would be afraid of speaking out uh, um, against Abi. And just a few weeks ago, we had reports of two prominent professors at Al-Zaba University that was arrested um, because they had made critical remarks about the ongoing conflict. And there have been, also been other uh, more public figures that have uh, re been rebuked uh, for uh, being critical. Uh, so it is very uncertain, um, uh, but I think uh, it's important to keep in mind that Adesabba is not necessarily a reflection of uh, the very varied and complex landscapes that we have across the country. I'm curious. Um how you've interpreted the response to the the conflict from the United States. I've been sort of struck by um, th th there's been a steady stream really of criticism of Abi and his conduct of the war uh, from Washington that I don't I mean, I don't know if it's surprising. Maybe maybe it is. I don't know. Um, but it's been striking to to see the Biden administration kind of continue beating that drum. H have you Notice that has that struck you as well, and and what do you f feel like you know is, is sort of the U.S. interest here in in, uh, in this conflict, and what kind of outcome uh, would they like to see? Again, a difficult question to ask. Um, I think the current administration is kind of lost when it comes to its Africa politics and in, in policies in general. For example, how do they deal with the, the coup in, in Sudan and so on? And it seems like they're not really sure of, of what to do here. Um, I know that um, the U.S. Uh, at the beginning of the conflict still believed that Abi was the right uh, was the right guy, and and they were you know they were throwing the support behind him. But then as things kind of got out of hand. Um, the Biden administration became more and more critical um, of the um, of the Abiy uh, Ahmed government, and then um, they appointed uh, Feldman as their special own envoy, who has been trying to um, trying to negotiate without very much uh, luck. And as we know, of course, sanction has been. Uh, uh, implemented both on Eritrea and, and Ethiopia. Um, but I also think that the stubbornness uh, from Abiy Ahmed is really kind of unprecedented. He has rebuked every effort, more or less, of having uh, any kind of negotiated settlement. 
Um, so back to your question, I'm, I'm not sure what America wants out of this and I'm not sure what, if they, they know themselves. Um, it's clear that, um, if Abi, um, loses this war, if he has to go, uh, we are faced with a very, uh, complicated, um, future for Ethiopia. What will come next and what will be, um, what possible scenarios would there be? And America does not want to have Ethiopia falling apart. They don't want to have um, it becoming like a, a new Balkan situation. But uh, they don't really know what I think what would be the best outcome. That's at least my my interpretation. We've talked, uh, you and I have talked before about this conflict and about the, the possibility of uh, a wider, you know, kind of spillover effect into into other regions, and we've seen over the course of the conflict that that there have been um, somewhat related border issues with be, between Sudan and and uh, Ethiopia. Um, obviously, Eritrea got involved very heavily in the conflict. Um, Ethiopia is still en enmeshed in a, a very serious potential dispute uh, with Egypt and Sudan over the uh, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. I don't want to talk about any of these regional issues uh, in any detail, but um, do you do you? have any concerns still about regional spillover? It seems actually like the conflict has gotten more internal as the, the TPLF has advanced on the capital and maybe there's less risk at the moment of spillover. On the other hand, uh, if the country falls apart, as you suggested, that has huge ramifications for the, the rest of the, the Horn of Africa and beyond. Yeah, it's extremely difficult to speculate. I mean, much of this will obviously depend on the trajectory of the conflict. At the moment, it seems that um, there is only a military solution to this, meaning that the warring parties seems very uh, unwilling to negotiate any, any kind of settlement. So um, the region impacts will, of course, be dependent on, okay, who wins the conflict, one, and then what kind of political constellation would then emerge um, in Ethiopia. And um, if uh, Abi is able to continue his, his leadership, um, the conflict with Tigray is going to last for a long time. It's not going to be over. Um, and then you have the uncertainty in Sudan, um, that is at the moment very fluid. Uh, the generals of the military in Sudan are more of the, the hawkish nature and um, uh, would most likely be more inclined to, um, again, engage further with, with Ethiopia on the disputed border territories. Um, but again, there's at the moment... Um, so much uncertainties um, as to which way Ethiopia, the developments in Ethiopia would go and, and whatever um, outcome would then be, it will definitely have regional impacts. 
I'd like to end on that this note then uh, to to ask you, given the uncertainty over uh, how this conflict could end, do you see any path out of it that that results in Ethiopia more or less remaining? together um and this is another thing you and i've talked about in the past and uh as you said there there's always been the parties and uh, and the the ethnic ethnic uh leaders have always managed to no matter what their disputes to kind of uh be flexible enough to keep uh, keep the country together on the other hand uh as you talked about earlier in this interview the level of rhetoric and sort of genocidal level of rhetoric is something uh that seems unprecedented uh for for an, an internal uh ethiopian conflict given that and given the way that this has gone do you see any path out of this that doesn't end with either a, a breakup of the country altogether or at least some you know very fundamental upheaval uh in in the way that ethiopia is governed and its structures i have to admit that the the it looks very bleak uh it it, it looks um i mean it's very complicated to, and, and and the possible scenarios are several, but I don't know if any of them would actually bring any constructive change or, or bring any any sense of stability. Um, there is also something, though, that there is, I mean, among Ethiopians and political elites and so on, a, a certain degree of pragmatism that uh, even if uh, one have been involved in conflicts and fought each other for 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 a long time that okay let's 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 come to our senses let's let's sit down here and and, and talk um and i still have that hope that okay now we need to stop this is going too far uh, i still have that hope uh, although it's not a very strong hope um uh the TPLF is very clear that um, there cannot be a, a future of Ethiopia with Abiy Ahmed at the helm. Um, so I think that that is that is what they they want to remove him. But then the question becomes: Okay, what role would TPLF then play, and what other actors would possibly involved in trying to create? Um, stability and 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 uh, a sense of governance that is the big question and and i would hope that um negotiation could start soon um i think but again that would be depend on who will continue to have the upper hand and who could actually win this conflict militarily I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, I know you had something you wanted to to bring up uh, at the end here um, about your your program. I think at at uh, University of Florida, right? Yeah, we are um, seeking a new director for our Center for African Studies at the University of Florida. the The ad can be found at the UF's homepage in the the, the Chronicle of Higher Education. But we're we're seeking for for a new director to lead. Um, the Center for African Studies, which is a national resource center and one of the leading centers for African studies in the country. So I want to encourage people to 
um, if if they have somebody in mind or if if they're interested to take a look at the ad and, and spread the word to anyone who would be interested or relevant for the position. All right. So, uh, yeah, listeners, you know, check that out. If you know somebody or you yourself are interested, uh, you know, give it a look and uh, and maybe consider applying. Terry, uh, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, obviously, uh, circumstances are not great in terms of the subject that we're discussing, but um, uh, I want to thank you very much for coming on uh, the program. And I think uh, hopefully, you know, giving people a, a, a better grasp of what's actually going on here. So, so thank you very much for doing that. Well, thank you for having me.